0: Thanks for listening to the Travel Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Randy Druzen. Randy is a Toronto-based author and journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, ESPN, the Magazine, Time Magazine, The Globe and Mail, and the Toronto Star. The author of three books, her latest is called Behind the Mask, a revealing look at 12 of the greatest goalies in hockey history. The book profiles 12 legendary goalies, emphasizing the traits that made each one unique while blending their on-ice exploits with anecdotes about their lives off the ice. The book covers goalies from a wide variety of eras, including Jerry Cheevers, Rogie Vachon, Mike Palmatier, Carey Price, Henrik Lundqvist, and Marc-Andre Fleury. Welcome, Randy, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you?
1: Well, I'm doing fine. I'm recovering from my nephew's um, birthday party last week. (laughs) <laughs> He's seven, so it wasn't raucous. It was just a little unwieldy. And uh, I live in downtown Toronto, so the CN Tower is essentially in my backyard.
0: Excellent. Well, that's a neat thing to look at, out your backyard window. The new book is now out. Congratulations. What has the uh, feedback and reader reaction been like?
1: So far, it's been really positive, and uh, I'm happy and relieved about that. The one thing I do get comments about, the only negative comment I've been receiving is that people look at the goalies in the book and say, hey, these aren't the greatest of all time. And I said, where's Ken Dryden? You know, where's Martin Brodeur? Where's Dominic Hasek? The answer is they're all in the last book, which came out 13, like 10 years ago. This is a sequel. So these are another 12 goalies who are great. But if you want to argue they're not the greatest, you need to look at my last book. (laughs)
0: Excellent. It's a great great cross-marketing strategy. I like that.
1: What I did get from people, you know, it's been, if you can speak to some of the people we know in common and they'll tell you they're getting this from everyone. Why isn't Ken Dryden in this book, for example?
0: Well, we will get to the ones that are in the book, but first I want to ask, what do you enjoy more, the actual book writing process or the post-publishing promotional tour?
1: Oh, I'd say the post-publishing promotion's much easier, less taxing mentally. It's more fun, too, because you meet people and um, you talk about goalies, which I love doing. I don't have to put my thinking cap on in terms of writing, which is a relief.
0: Now, you have said that based on your experiences in writing books, you could actually write a book about writing books. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I've had some very interesting experiences because I'm a female hockey writer I think my experiences may be different from my male counterparts. So when I say I could write a book about writing books, I'm thinking mostly of the former players I've interviewed from the 50s and 60s and their attitudes towards women. And uh, I've had some very interesting experiences, which I've shared with a lot of my friends, but maybe not with a broader audience.
0: (laughs) And is it safe to say, Randy, you straighten them out?
1: I think so. I mean... I don't tell anyone off. I just, you know, I just stick to the script. You know, I don't really, I don't really get into the flirting. <laughs> but I'm working.
0: Well, it sounds like an interesting experience for sure.
1: Yeah. Let's,
0: let's dive into Behind the Mask. As you noted, it is effectively a sequel to your 2013 book on NHL goalies called Between the Pipes. So maybe we should go back a step first. What was that initial book, Between the Pipes, about?
1: It was the same concept. It was an anthology. It was 12 uh, legendary goalies. That book focused primarily on the original six goalies, like Jacques Plante, Gump Worsley, Glenn Hall, and that group. It did go through, you know, Bernie Perrant, and then into the 80s and 90s. I think the last goalie in that book was Martin Brodeur. But it also had Belfour, Hasek, Patrick Waugh, and, and those guys. This group in the newer book, it does include some some of the older goalies, but for the most part, I think it's more contemporary goalies.
0: And what was your process involved in writing this book? And for those of us unfamiliar with the process, how long did it take from start to finish?
1: Um, I think like most writers, I'm a bit of a procrastinator. So I believe I signed the contract and then for eight or nine months did nothing. (laughs) And then that made the last year of work quite difficult, but I've no one to blame but myself. I would say about a year and a half.
0: Wow. So, yeah. and the, the time since you submitted the transcript to the time that it got published, you know what that gap was?
1: Well, I was still tweaking. I think I remember very clearly in February and March, working with the editor and, and adding in information and smoothing it out a little. That would have been March, April. I think the very last draft I sent was probably the end of April. And it came out the end of October, so five months. But during the time, I was dealing with other issues like choosing cover art and writing the content for the inside sleeves, that kind of thing.
0: So it is a a longer process than the average person would know. It's very interesting. Now, process-wise, I know that Roger Crozier and Tony Esposito have passed on. But, Randy, were you able to directly interview the other goalies that you profiled?
1: Yeah, of the uh, remaining goalies, there was 10. And I interviewed six of those. Carrie Price wasn't giving any interviews at the time. And Ed Jockerman, I couldn't find. There was a few other glitches, but I did get six. And they were really good interviews. I was really fortunate that the people I did speak to were quite easy to speak to and had a lot of colorful anecdotes to share.
0: Well, that's great. I want to ask if it was difficult to arrange these interviews. Now, I know, for example, Mike Palmatier has effectively been off the radar for literally decades, and he has personally told me that he ahem, does not do interviews.
1: Yes, that's true. I, had a, I did speak to him, but he said he would not do an interview. So as pleasant as he was in our email exchange and our phone call, I could not interview him. However, I did work around that by interviewing a lot of his former teammates. Um, for example, we had Bruce Boudreaux and Tiger Williams, Paul Harrison, and some others. So I did get a good sense of who Mike Palmateer was on the ice and off the ice during his playing days. And then when the book came out, I did send him a copy, you know, just to let him know I'm not holding any grudges.
0: Excellent. Well, I feel better that we're in the same group. And and Randy, since you mentioned that, I do have to note he he was extremely pleasant to me. So uh, it wasn't personal for me either. Yeah. Now, of course, we want listeners to buy the book and read the full stories on each of these 12 goaltenders, but I thought you could give us a brief snippet on each. So let's start with the aforementioned hometown kid. I know he is your favorite because he's also mine, the popcorn kid, Mike Palmatier. Now, Mike was undersized but acrobatic. Why was he so successful?
1: Well, I think there's two reasons. One is he was absolutely fearless on the ice. In fact, I recall one newspaper article I came across where he said that he was so out of his crease, you know, on the ice, flopping around, putting his head in front of pucks. And afterwards he thought to himself, why did I do that? That was just crazy. But in the moment, he was fearless. He thought about it later, thought maybe it wasn't the smartest idea. But at the time, in the moment, he's completely fearless. That's one factor. The other factor is, like all goalies, he was supremely confident. Like, in his mind, he was the best goalie in the world. And that, ha- that was the case even when he lost. So I think it was the confidence and the fearlessness that made him such a great goalie. And you know what? If his knees had held up better and longer, who knows what he could have done and where he could have taken the leaps.
0: Well, some have called him Dominic Hasik before there was a Dominic Hashick. yes, And, uh, Randy, as you know, he did not have a lack of confidence. Do you want to share the story of when General Manager Jim Gregory first called him up to the Leafs?
1: Yeah, the Leafs were having problems with goaltending early in that season. And so they thought, you know what, we'll take a, we'll take a chance on this kid. They called him up and Palmateer, despite having never played a game in the NHL, just said to him, your goaltending problems are over. I've arrived, <laughs> which says a lot about his confidence again.
0: Excellent. I like that. Now, it's probably self-evident, but I will ask you, did you look into it all, how he got the nickname, the Popcorn Kid?
1: Oh, I did, because I heard rumors that it was fabricated, that he really didn't eat popcorn. But then I spoke to some of his former teammates, and they confirmed, yes, he did, in fact, eat popcorn in the dressing room, and he ate it in very creative ways. You know, Sometimes he would bounce it off the wall and into his mouth or throw it in the air, get it in his mouth occasionally he would just do what the rest of us do and pick it up with his hand, put it in his mouth. But there's no doubt that he did eat popcorn. And apparently he also indulged in some other concession stand treats.
0: I love that. That's great. Yeah. Now let's move on to Marc-Andre Fleury. Now he's especially interesting as he is still playing in the NHL at age 39 for the Minnesota Wild. I guess he just loves to compete.
1: Oh, he does. And I think there were several times in his career, both early on and even later, like in the last few years, where he's been written off and he just keeps plugging away. And he said, you know, like just two years ago, people keep counting me out, but I'm still having fun and I'm going to keep playing for as long as I'm enjoying it. And, you know, last season, there was a point where he thought, finally, I'm going to be able to get into a brawl, an on-ice brawl. He dropped the gloves and then it just didn't work out for him. And he expressed disappointment that the referees broke it up before it got going.
0: Well, that sounds like the true goalie mentality doesn't mind dropping the gloves as well. Now, Henrik Lundqvist was recently inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, but he is also well known for being a fashionable guy. Apparently, he once appeared on the David Letterman show.
1: He really is a fashionable guy. He um, he's been to uh, Fashion Week in Milan, you know, Fashion Week in New York. He's been on the cover of various magazines, The Best Dressed. And um, he plays it down a little bit when he's doing interviews because he wants the focus to be on his game. But there's no doubt that he has a reputation for being a sharp-dressed man. And, um, you know, he wears a well. He's given clothing advice to his teammates. So they know as well as we do that, he, that he's that he got the chops to be on the front of you.
0: That's excellent. Now, Carey Price won four individual awards in a single season, but never won a Stanley Cup He's been a real mainstay for the Montreal Canadiens and playing internationally for Canada. Effectively, was he a great goalie on good teams?
1: Well, if you speak to Ken Dryden, uh, Dryden once commented saying that he himself was a good goalie on a great team, whereas Price is a great goalie on an okay team or a good team. So I feel like Ken Dryden probably knows more than I do about (laughs) goaltending. So I'll take his word for it. But there's no doubt that Price is... Uh, strength was not just his performance on the ice but psychologically it got to the point where other players on opposing teams just thought I can't I can't get the puck past this guy like he really got into their heads in a way the same way Dominic Hoshek did you know a decade earlier two decades earlier so I think one of Price's great strengths was that he really freaked out opposing shooters
0: and isn't that half the battle if you could win that mental battle you're ahead
1: Exactly. I mean, if you look at Hasek in Nagano, you know, it got to the point where other teams just kind of gave up. They're like, he's impenetrable. We're never going to score on him. And they didn't as a result of that.
0: Let's talk about Roberto Luongo. He's also known for his longevity. He is number two in all time games played and number four all time in wins. But perhaps he's best known for what he did for ice hockey in the Sunshine State of Florida.
1: Yeah, I mean, he went down there, and um, he didn't have any familiarity with the area at all, but he really became part of the community. He met his wife down there, and then, as you'll recall, when there was that shooting in the Parkland school shooting, he was very much moved by what had happened because it wasn't too far from his own home. And he did speak about that on the ice before a game. So he became really beloved in Florida, and he's still there. He's now with the Panthers in management, so clearly... It was a good fit for him.
0: Let's talk about Grant Fuhrer, who did play a bit for our Maple Leafs at the tail end of his career. Grant was a black kid adopted by a white family in Alberta. Who was this an issue for, and who was it not an issue for?
1: He himself thought it was not an issue. Like, in his own mind, he never thought of himself as a as a black goalie. He just thought of himself as a goalie. And he just assumed and expected other people to feel the same way. So... That was, for him, a non-issue. However, it was something other people commented on constantly and may have been an issue when he was in Buffalo, when he was denied membership of a country club that many of his teammates were members of. It's still uncertain whether that was the issue. The club denies it, but it was definitely something that was talked about at the time. So when I spoke to Grant, you know, he didn't make a big deal about that or about his skin color at all. For him, it was not even an issue.
0: Now... Grant Fjord did not have a sparklingly low goals against average, but Randy, would you say he was best known as a clutch goaltender who could hang in there and get the win, even if it was 7-6 or 9-8?
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, he played on a team with explosive offense, so, you know, he felt in his mind they can score six goals on me and we'll score seven goals on them. So he didn't have the attitude where I have to shut the door all the time. However, Gretzky acknowledged grant or describe grant as the best goalie in hockey and there's a reason for that the reason is he was a clutch goaltender so when the chips were down and he had to come up with a big save he always did so he was very similar to cheevers in that way because cheevers is also a clutch goaltender so sure his goals against average wasn't sparkling but to him it didn't matter and to his teammates it didn't matter because he was there when they needed him
0: Well, let's talk about uh, Jerry Cheevers. He played for Don Cherry's Boston Bruins and had that really iconic mask with all the stitches. Randy, what's the story on how that mask design came to be?
1: Well, Jerry Cheevers, as anyone who's even, you know, has a cursory knowledge of the Bruins history will tell you, Jerry Cheevers was quite a character, big personality, big in games, but he did not like to practice. And so at one point he came off the ice in the middle of a practice And tried to come up with an excuse so he wouldn't have to go back on. He knew that nothing he could say would fly. So he had, as a joke, the trainer draw a stitch on his mask. So when Harry Sinden came in and said, get your ass back on the ice, he claimed he was injured and pointed to the stitch on his mask. And it just became um, tradition that every time he got hit in the face with a puck on his mask, that they would put an extra stitch on there. So it was clear how many times the mask had saved his face
0: but it's a truly iconic mask. Now, a Toronto-centric note is that on February 7th, 1976, when Daryl Sittler pumped in six goals along with four assists for his very famous 10-point night, Jerry Chevers was actually on the bench and the Bruins' other goalie, Dave Reese, had to suffer through that full onslaught. Was Chevers not having to play through that night just a lucky break for him?
1: I don't think it was lucky. I think it was by design. You know, Don Cherry's just looked at what was going on and said, no, no, no. I don't want this to be Cheever's or Cheesy's big return to the NHL because he had just come back from the WHA. So he wanted the return to be better than that, which is why they waited. And poor Dave Reese had to bear the brunt of uh, Sittler's onslaught that night. I still feel sorry for Dave Reese, but Cheever's, as you know, went on to play for the Bruins and do quite well. So, you know... That's the way history wrote itself, unfortunately for Debris.
0: Let's talk about Tony Esposito, the goalie half of the All-Star Esposito brothers, along with his high-scoring brother, Phil. Now, apparently, after they played against each other one night, their mom, Frances, followed up by calling Phil. What did Phil report back to their mother on that phone call?
1: Well, he told his mother that, uh, you know, Tony had played really well. He was just starting in the league at the time. But when his mother found out that, You know, Phil was the one who had done the most damage in terms of goals against his brother. She was, you know, really angry and told him off. How can you do that to your little brother? So, you know, he had to go for two weeks without speaking to his mother. That's what he said anyway. Whether it's true or not, he may have been exaggerating. But I'm sure she wasn't pleased that, you know, Tony (laughs) had to suffer at the hands of his older brother. Again, just like he had when they were kids.
0: Now, an interesting fact is that Tony Esposito actually started with the Montreal Canadiens, but he didn't become a star until he joined the Chicago Blackhawks.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Chicago Black. his first season in Chicago was phenomenal and still spoken about to this day. Like his style was very unorthodox. Like Glenn Hall had introduced the butterfly. Esposito brought it to another level and um, people were kind of skeptical about what he could do. And he was just known as Phil's little brother at that point. But he he went to Chicago, had an outstanding rookie season, and established himself as a star in his own right.
0: Now, Vladislav Tretiak is the only goalie you cover who did not play in the NHL. He, of course, starred for the Soviet Red Army and became an icon during the 1972 Summit Series. Would you say that he had a fellowship, however, with goalies in the NHL?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when they saw him play in that series in seventy two. They just had so much respect for him, as Canadian hockey fans did as well. So in the years after that series, a lot of the players, the Soviet players, bonded with the Canadian players, and um, Treczak was really well-regarded and well-liked by the Canadian players. So he did have that fellowship, and I don't know if you recall, but in the chapter, I did mention that in another series, uh, when he was playing against Cheevers in an international series... He really had a lot of respect for Cheevers, and he was amazed that Cheevers could be such a great goalie, even though he tended to smoke and and drink, or at least smoke a lot. You know, he saw him smoking cigars, so he was kind of wondering, how can this, you know, this Canadian um, cigar smoker, joker, um, be such a great goalie? But they had a lot of respect for each other.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that, because Cheevers, as you know, famously didn't like to practice, but Tretiak loved to train and practice.
1: Yeah, I don't know if Tretiak had much of a choice. You know, the Soviet Union in that day, the players didn't have a lot of free will. I understood there were times where they wanted to go home and spend some time with their families and were told, no, you're, not, you're just going to stay here and you're going to keep training. And they did dry land training. They did on-ice training. I mean, essentially, they were just training all the time. So I don't know if he liked it or didn't like it, but I know he had no choice. So it definitely made made him a very disciplined goalie.
0: Now, the Montreal Canadiens did subsequently, in fact, draft Vadislav Treciak. Why did he never end up playing for Montreal in the NHL?
1: You know, that will remain a mystery for years. I mean, the Soviet authorities basically said, no, this isn't going to happen. They gave an excuse or an explanation, I guess, saying his father was in the army and, you know, there's other reasons he can't go. It's sensitive. It's he has an obligation here. We don't really know because at a certain point he was going to be able to play in the NHL and they were going to let him go and then they changed their mind. And I think to this day, it's really unfortunate for Canadian hockey fans because how great would it have been to see Tretiak, you know, in the NHL? I would have preferred an Elise jersey, but I think he may have ended up wearing a Canadian's jersey if he was in the league.
0: That would have been incredible for sure. Now, Roki Dashaw is well known for his goaltending greatness for the Los Angeles Kings, but he actually was originally with the Montreal Canadiens and famously lost his job in 1971 to a young rookie named Ken Dryden, who never looked back after an amazing Stanley Cup playoff run. But Roki subsequently was great playing net in Los Angeles, where you could argue he alone carried that Kings team.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when he went to Los Angeles, it was a relatively new team. It... Um didn't have a big fan base. And let's face it, it was just, it was close to Venice Beach. It's just not a hockey hotbed in that area. So the Kings were really not on the radar in Los Angeles and not on the radar much with uh, Canadian hockey fans or American hockey fans who are mostly concentrated in the Northeast uh, or Midwest. So he really started from nothing and he ended up playing really, really well there and putting Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Kings on the map. Unfortunately for him, At that point, you know, the West Coast was barely noticed by NHL coaches, players, and others. So he didn't get a lot of the credit he deserved, but he was phenomenal. And if you look back at some of the, you know, the visuals from the games, you can see this man was on fire for that one season.
0: Well, that's certainly a common theme. People don't uh, remember or may not know that back then there was not television coverage of all these games on the west coast and with the time difference so a lot of these players who starred with the los angeles kings didn't really get the coverage that they would have gotten being on the east coast
1: well for sure how often do we talk about butch goring he's not something that comes not someone that comes up a lot and he was you know he was a good player but he's on the west coast so it was like who knows you know he still weren't paying attention
0: let's talk old school goalies Ed Jackman played for the New York Rangers in an era when there were only six teams, the original six. And at that time, teams did not carry backups. So there were literally only six goaltending jobs in the entire NHL. What made Ed Jackman confident that he could get one of those very rare six jobs?
1: Well, he was when he was younger, he was a really good athlete and uh, he was determined. He just set his sights on that goal and he thought, okay. there's only six goal like elite goaltenders in the world and I want to be one of them. So he just set his mind to doing it. And, you know, in fact, at one point he suffered burns from a household accident. He suffered burns on his legs. And the doctor said, There's no way you can play. But what he did was he went, he taped up his legs so that the team didn't know what was going on. And by the time every his teammates arrived in the dressing room, he looked fine. He went on the ice and he played like a million bucks. So he was suffering, he was in pain, but no one knew. And that is what helped propel him to the top of the league. That and his his willingness to work with the coaching staff, you know, when they were trying to modify his game. And he he was willingly able to do that. And he did change his game a little bit.
0: Now, a fun side note is that along with Boom Boom Jeffrey on, he appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. But what happened to Ed Jackman during that show?
1: Well, he got hit in the throat with a puck, <laughs> which may have entertained the studio audience, but I don't know how happy the Rangers were about that. He uh, he really suffered for a few days, like having problems speaking and probably eating, I'm guessing. But um, it's a little known fact that he did, he did have a starring role on the Johnny Carson show at one point, on The Tonight Show, rather.
0: That's great. Now, the last of the 12 goalies you cover is also old school. Roger Crozier starred for the Detroit Red Wings and Buffalo Sabres. But his interesting story is that just four years after starting his career, he retired, albeit temporarily. Why did he initially retire?
1: I think the best way to look back on Roger Crozier is to think amazing goalie, nervous Nelly. You know, he was just a bundle of nerves from the beginning of his career to the end. He had an ulcer. He had all sorts of other gastrointestinal issues and pancreatitis. And when I did the research on that chapter, I spoke to his daughter. And his daughter said to me that she thought his nervous disposition really contributed to his physical ailments. So when you look back on Crozier, you have to realize, despite his brilliance on the ice, he was, he was like really nervous at all times.
0: If you're enjoying this trial legends interview, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got TVO's Steve Pakin, our Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, Olympic gold medalist Donovan Bailey, Mark McCoy and Bruni Surin, the King of Bay Street, Wes Hall, and Glass Tiger's Alan Frew. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you've noted that one of the great debates about your book is who gets in, who gets out. I want to ask you, other than Vadislav Treciak, why are there no international goalies in your book?
1: Well, I think for, the, for people here, I think they're more interested, to be honest, in NHL goalies. You know, I mean, we know about the great European goalies. Uh, we have Treciak in the book. We have Lundqvist in the book. Hasek was in the last one. So there's a smattering of European goalies in this book. But I think fans here are more interested in the NHL. That's one reason. The other reason is, until recently, there weren't a lot of really dominating goalies from Europe in the NHL. That's more of a recent phenomena. So I feel like, you know, 15, 20 years from now, if I'm going to do another book looking at great NHL goalies, you'll have to put in the Europeans. Vasilevsky, Bobrovsky, Tukarask. There's just so many great European goalies now. But, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that wasn't the case.
0: And I do want to give a shout out, Randy, to uh, the esteemed European author, Risto Pekarinen, who is working currently on a biography of Alpo Suhonen from Finland, who not only was a great goalie and not only a great coach, but went on to become an assistant coach with the Toronto Maple Leafs.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Finns are, um, you know, a great hockey nation. And uh, we've had a lot of great Finnish players, not a ton of great Finnish goalies. But I'm expecting, with the way things are going, that we will see more of them in the years ahead.
0: Absolutely. Now, I'm guessing you possibly also got this bit of feedback about gender disparity. Why no female goalies covered in your book? And in particular, why no Menon Rioum, who actually did play for the Tampa Bay Lightning in NHL exhibition games?
1: Well, I mean, they're legendary goalies. You know, they're the best goalies in the world over the course of human history, let's say, or let's say hockey history, um, to be more fair. But I feel like there are some great female goalies, and one of them, Sammy Joe Small, is in the book. I spoke to her about Grand Fear, I spoke to her about Tretiak and the influence that they had on her. But in terms of a standout goalie, like right now when you think of women's hockey, there's not one goalie that you can say, This female goalie is, you know, lights out phenomenal above and beyond all the other goalies that are playing women's hockey. So I think as of now, there's not that kind of goalie who should be in a book, but that can change. There's now a a women's professional league that seems like it's going to really do well. So five, 10 years from now, if I do another book, you know, we'll do that. We'll have more European goalies, male European goalies, and we'll have more female goalies.
0: Excellent. I think we got a a game plan mapped out, Randy. There's always going to be more material, which is fantastic.
1: (laughs) Always, yes.
0: Now let's talk about you, Randy, the person in elementary school when most girls wanted to be part of Charlie's Angels. You wanted to be an NHL goaltender. What's your background?
1: My background is that I was a tomboy as a kid. I remember, like most girls, you know, in the 70s and 80s, that my parents signed me up for figure skating lessons. And I remember one day in particular coming off the ice and drinking a hot chocolate, you know, while waiting for my dad to pick me up. And what the boys went on the ice after. And they're playing hockey. And I just remember looking at the ice thinking, wait a minute, why do the boys get to have all the fun and I have to skate around in circle in white skates, skate around circles? And I just said to my parents, that's it. I'm not going back on the ice until I'm playing hockey. (laughs) And so they looked around and found one of the very few Uh, leagues that would allow girls to play at the time. So that's how it started. And then I also had a babysitter. You know, my parents would go out on their date night every Saturday, and my babysitter would come in, and she was a big hockey fan. So we always watched Hockey Night in Canada. And there was just something about the game that I loved right away. You know, it was my first love.
0: Excellent. And I understand that you are a Toronto girl. Do you want to give a shout-out to uh, your neighborhood you grew up in?
1: Oh, I grew up in Thornhill, not too far from Mitch Marner. Although... Full disclosure, Mitch Marner's a few years younger than me. <laughs> um, no, I'm from Thornhill. So that's uh, that's where I learned to love hockey. And now every time someone from Markham or Vaughn, you know, is successful in professional sports, I'm telling everyone, hey, they're from my neighborhood. So I am from Thornhill, yes.
0: Excellent. Now, how did you get into a career of journalism and, and what prompted you to take a crack at writing books?
1: Well, I always... Loved writing. You know, when I, was, when I was a kid in school, creative writing and gym classes were my two favorites. So, and then I've always followed the news. So I just thought it was a natural fit for someone who likes writing and who follows the news to become a journalist. Um, so that was my career choice right from the beginning, much to my parents' chagrin. They wanted me to go to law school. So I became a journalist. And then I just thought, what's the next step? You know, like I'd been writing for magazines and newspapers for a while. And I thought, what comes after that? How do I advance my career? And I just thought, hey, maybe I'll, I'll give a shot. I'll, I'll try writing books. But the very first book I wrote was The History of Women in Sports. It was a complete idiot's guide. And that one came to me. That was someone I was working with had published a book. And the publisher said to them, hey, we need a woman to write about sports. Do you know anyone? And because I was the only woman in the sports department, you know, I got the nod. I got the ice time.
0: And in 2015, you worked with former NHL star Reggie Leach on his autobiography, The Riverton Rifle, My Story, Straight Shooting on Hockey and on Life. Now, Reggie was part of the Flyers' Broad Street Bullies era. He must have had some pretty interesting stories.
1: He really did. And the one thing I got from speaking to him, and I had this realization that I hadn't before, is that the Flyers of that era were not just a tough team. They were a very, very talented team. Like, you look at Leach... Rick McLeish, Bobby Clark, they were tough, but they were very, very talented. They had great offensive power, and they had Bernie Parent in net. So people often tend to dismiss the Broad Street Bullies as nothing more than goons. However, there was much more to it than that. And um, that's something that became very clear to me from speaking to Reggie and Bobby Clark and some Bill Barber and some of the others, and even speaking to some of the goalies they faced. You know, like Reggie Leach had Ken Dryden's number. So Ken Dryden, as good as he was, for some reason, could not stop Reggie Leach. And Reggie's delighted. (laughs) He was delighted to tell me that. Ken Dryden, I think when I interviewed him, I asked him about that. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he wasn't quite as enthusiastic as Reggie was about that.
0: For sure. Now, Randy, I believe that the best goalie artwork in history is the one in every doctor's office. Ken Danby's at the crease with that goalie in that tight, crouched position, ready to make the save. Do you concur?
1: Oh, yeah. That's an iconic image. And I have some trivia to share with you about that. I am friends with Ken Danby's son. And when he, I met him at my book launch for Between the Pipes 10 years ago. And when I met him, he said, oh, it's, you know, we could have talked about my dad's my dad's image and maybe getting the rights, or we could have had a discussion about it, and I thought, oh no, I met you know, I met Sean too late. <laughs> but um yeah, it's an iconic image and everyone that meets Sean talks to him about his dad and that image and who is the goalie in that image. And there's a lot of discussion about that as well.
0: Oh, that sounds worth following up on. Did you ever get consensus on on who the goalie is?
1: I believe it was a goalie who um was playing either university hockey or junior hockey somewhere in Guelph. I could be wrong about that, but I, that's what I gather. I'll have to double-check on that. But it is an iconic image, and to me, to me, it looks a little bit like Tony Esposito, but I know it's not him. I'm just not sure exactly who it was. I'll have to do some research and get back to you, Andrew.
0: Now, you've written about so many different goalies, Randy. I would be remiss if I did not ask, who is your favorite goalie and why?
1: I get asked this all the time, and I I end up making friends and enemies when I give my answer. But I'll tell you, my favorite is Dominic Hasek, because first, he was incredible. No one can dispute that. I mean, just look at his grocery cart full of Vezinas. And his goals against average in Nagano, I think, was under one, which speaks for itself. But also, I was living in Prague at the time. I was living in Prague from 93 to 98 when two of the best players in the world were Hasek and Jager. So, you know, I have, an, I have sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling when I think back to those days, and Hasek was a big part of that. I was also in Prague when the Czechs won gold in Nagano, and when they came back for the big welcome in Old Town Square, and Hasek was there. And uh, he's also a good interview. You know, he was really articulate. He talked to me for a long time about a lot of things, including the Euro and, um, you know, international politics. So um, I'm impressed with Hasek on the ice and off the ice, which is not to say the other goalies aren't incredible because they are, and that's why I wrote about them. And some of them are quite interesting characters too, which makes writing about goalies so much fun.
0: Well, as you note, know, that would be an endless uh, sports bar room debate. Who's the greatest goalie? So that, that's material for days and days. Yes. As we close up, Randy, I want to ask, what are you working on next or are you taking a well-deserved break?
1: I'm taking a well-deserved break. I'll tell you, when my publisher and a few other people have said to me, "So, when are you going to write another book?" That's like saying to a woman who's just given birth, "When are you going to have another baby?" My answer is, "Just let me recover. <laughs> like, give me six months or so, like just to recover and rest, and uh, then we'll start talking about another book." But I definitely would like to write more. The thing about my writing is, it's a little unconventional. It's a little quirky. So when I pick subject matter, I have to pick subjects that would allow me to write in that way, and not all subjects lend themselves to that kind of writing. So this is something I have to take into consideration.
0: True enough. Well, I hope you enjoy your break. Are you on social media, and where can we best follow you?
1: Yeah, I have a Twitter account, Randy Drusen, same spelling on Twitter, and um, I'm in the process of building a sports blog. So, and I've done some really good interviews, like I've interviewed um, Olaf Koltzig, and I did literally dozens of interviews for the book. So I'll be putting up transcripts of those interviews over the next few months. I just have to get that website up and running. And as you know, anyone who's had a website knows it's not that simple and not that quick.
0: True enough. But that's great that you're going to get all that material out there. Well, again, the book is called Behind the Mask, a revealing look at 12 of the greatest goalies in hockey history. Randy, I want to thank you for your time. It was great to meet you and hear your stories, and I'm, I'm already excited about what's coming next.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew. It was really fun talking to you.
0: It's my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Randy Drusen, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.